Welcome to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit SharonChurch.com. We hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Lyrics are powerful because they stir things up in us. Um, even for those of us who say we're not emotional and it doesn't do, it does. It stirs things up in you. It's why you remember songs from high school. It's why you know um, songs from your band in college. It's why you, music does that. It's the gift of the Lord to us. And the gift for us is that we get to sing things that are true. Not things we just feel, but things that we know to be true. And so when the lyrics say that all my life, you have been faithful. It doesn't say that we have been faithful because we know ourselves. That's a lie. We have not been faithful. We weren't faithful this morning, but God was. God was faithful this morning. He got you here this morning because he's faithful. He is faithful. When Joel was preaching earlier and he was preaching, but he says, the circumstances don't determine the goodness of God. Your feelings don't determine the goodness of God. It's true, because at the core of God's character is the fact that he is good. And if we believe that he is good and we see our circumstances through the filter of his goodness, our circumstances change and our hearts change. Would you just take a seat for a second? And maybe what we have to do is just count our blessings this morning. Maybe we just need to go to the Lord. Maybe just in stillness and in quiet as the band just plays quietly, we can just begin to recount the goodness of God to us. And listen, if it's been a rough week and a rough month or a rough six months, I get it. Then start here. That God so loved you, he sent his son for you. Because that's what it means that even when we don't have enough, he's more than enough. If you had nothing else in the world but Jesus, it's enough. So where's the Lord been good to you this morning? Where's he been good to you today and yesterday? God, we don't sit here today because we're faithful. We're not here today because we're good people who do good things and came to church like a good person. God, we're here today because you are good. And you're faithful and true in sickness and in health and life and in death and rich and richness and poverty. You, you're good. We get so distracted by your gifts that we neglect you as the giver. And that's not your fault. You're just generous. You're just good. So would you forgive us for the times that we've placed our faith in the gifts instead of the giver? And would you stir in us an affection and a love for you? It's not based on our feelings, but that generates feelings because of the core character of your goodness. We believe it today. And for those of us where we can't, Lord, help our unbelief. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We're in um, a new series called The Letter to the Ephesians. So fittingly, if you would turn to Acts chapter 20, that would make sense. So let's go to Acts chapter 20 as we continue our series through the letter to the Ephesians. It's week two, and we're still not to Ephesians yet, which feels a lot like the stories your dad used to tell you about high school. Just get onto the story, dad. This is great. Uh, So here we are. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 20. Uh, letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is on the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, for those of you who care. That's, that's where it is. It's in Paul's missionary journeys, uh, his second and third, he makes his way to Ephesus and, and does a lot of work there. Um, last week, we looked at the end of the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus throughout the Bible, we know more about this church than we know about any other church in the history of the world. We see everything from its, its small beginning to the beginning of its decline 
um, in, in Revelation chapter two. We see everything from the rise of leadership to the fall of leadership. We see um, its health and growth and expanding the gospel to where they have dissension coming up within the church. We see every arc of the church, which I hope gives, gives you and me hope for our church, knowing that uh, you don't make it into the Bible by being perfect. You make it into the Bible because you follow God. And so that's, that's what this church at Ephesus is. They aren't the example. They aren't the archetype of a church. They're just a church that shows us what it's like to follow Jesus and be a church. Um, some warnings are in there, but we see the history of it. So last week, we started some of that. I'm gonna walk us through some biblical history just to catch us up. If you weren't here last week, this will catch us up in it. And uh, I would encourage you, take notes. If you're a note taker, take notes. If you're not a note taker, take notes. I think it's important for you. Had a friend this past week who, who said because he took notes, he was able to share truth with a friend of his this week who was going through a hard time. He was able to open his notes back up and walk through a passage. That's just a gift of what we get to do when we study the word together. So let me give you some dates for those of you who care about history or just wanna win trivia night uh, at the Mexican restaurant. This will help you. All right, so the history of the church of Ephesus starts all the way, all the way back in AD 34. In, eight, in 34 AD, a man named Stephen is killed um, while a man named Saul watches. So Stephen was a deacon at the early church. Last series we did Acts chapter two when we saw the first Christian church meet in Jerusalem. Uh, they were growing so fast that the widows in their church weren't, their needs weren't being met like they should have been. So uh, some problems rose up to the apostles, the leaders of the church, and they said, we gotta fix this. And the apostles said, listen, we, are, we can't leave the ministry of prayer and teaching the word. Let's appoint deacons to handle the ministry of tables or the practical hands-on ministry. And it's not that the, uh, the apostles thought they were too good for the ministry. It's that they knew what God had called them to do and they wanted to raise people up who would fit what God had called them to do. And so they appoint what's called deacons. The word deacon in Greek just means servant. So it's someone who serves. Uh, we at Sharon Church, we have deacons and we have elders. Deacons are the ones who do hands-on ministry for us, setting things up, moving things around, collecting offering. Uh, that, this is what our deacons, our deacons do. They are the ministry leaders of our, of our church. So Stephen is the deacon. Um, Stephen was nominated, became a deacon, and then not too long after that was killed. So we're looking for deacons. If anyone's interested, seems like a pretty good life. It's short, but it's a good one. Uh, but Deacon, uh, Stephen, Stephen knows the gospel, proclaims truth, and then um, gets stoned to death um, by the religious council at the time. There's a man there by the name of Saul. Saul has risen to power in the religious council. Just a brilliant thinker, uh, like just a mind, I, probably one of the most intelligent men that's ever walked on the face of the earth. But he's there holding the coats of those who are throwing rocks at Stephen, approving of his death, the scripture reads in Acts. Less than a year later, Saul is on his way to Damascus outside Jerusalem to kill more Christians because he doesn't like what's happening with what's called the way and he's on his way there. And in AD 35, Jesus radically meets Saul and Saul gives his life to following Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord. He gives his life to him. Jesus had been crucified and resurrected but then ascended into heaven and said, Saul, don't make me come down there. And Saul made him come down there and Saul came down and, or Jesus came down. They had a conversation. Saul gives his life to Jesus and then Saul writes, well, probably two-thirds of the New Testament, a, a huge character for us. Later on, Saul would go back to his Gentile, his Greek name of Paul, as he was reaching the Gentiles. So we know him as Paul in the New Testament. That's in Acts chapter nine. 17 years later, Paul begins a missionary journey or finishes a missionary journey and finds himself in Ephesus. This is in AD 52. He comes to this town of Ephesus on the coast of the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea where they meet right there. Um, not far from Egypt, across the coast from Egypt and up towards Greece. Corinth is, is over to the west. And it's a little town called Ephesus. Ephesus is the cultural center of the, town, of the, of the time. A river runs through Ephesus. So a lot of trade happens there. They worship the goddess Artemis or Diana, the Greek goddess of fertility. That happens there. A lot of art, a lot of culture, a lot of brilliant thinkers. All that happens in Ephesus fall Paul finally gets to visit Ephesus and this church begins there from some small beginnings and that's in Acts chapter 18. A couple of years later from 54 to 56, Paul comes back to Ephesus and he's there. And this is really where the church begins. It's really where it starts to take form and take shape. We're gonna look at that here in Acts chapter 20 um, here in just, in just a bit. In AD 57, what we're really looking at is when Paul meets with the leadership of the church at Ephesus. He calls the elders up or down to, to a small town outside of Ephesus and he has kind of a leadership meeting with them about what's coming and what's about to happen in the church of Ephesus. We're gonna study that this morning. 
In AD 61 or 62, between 61 and 62, Paul finally writes the letter to the church at Ephesus. We just call it Ephesians, and he writes it from prison in Rome. You can find that in Acts chapter 28. Acts, or AD 64, Paul uh, leaves Timothy. Paul had met Timothy on one of his missionary journeys, named Timothy the pastor, or one of the elders of the church at Ephesus, leaves him behind, writes him a letter that he calls 1 Timothy because he would write a second letter in AD 68 called 2 Timothy as Paul is dying and fully leaving everything behind to Timothy. Then we also know in the 90s, like not Saved by the Bell, Zach Morris, neon print 90s, but in the zero 90s, AD, uh, John writes from the Isle of Patmos just off the coast of Ephesus and writes Revelation 2. Everybody good? Was that exciting for anyone at all? Great, because I'm bored, but here we are. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 20. Um, That's the history of the church at Ephesus. Again, we know so much about it, which is brilliant because we can find so many sources just in the Bible to tell us what's going on at the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, let's look at verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, this is Paul, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, knows that if he goes to Ephesus, he's gonna be there longer than he wants to be there. So he's not gonna go to Ephesus to meet with the elders. He calls them about 30 miles south and says, hey, come meet with me here. We need, we need to have a talk, we need to have a conversation. So he calls the elders. So let me just quickly help us all understand what an elder is. It's gonna be important for us moving forward. So if deacons are the ones who serve the hands-on ministry of the church, this elder, an elder is the one who is given oversight of the local body or over the church, an elder. In the New Testament, these words are interchangeable. Elder, uh, bishop, and overseer are all the same word. Every once in a while, you'll see the word pastor. Pastor is really a different word, but it's also interchangeable with that same kind of idea. So he calls the elders from Ephesus to Miletus to meet with him. Notice is an S on the end of, end of elders. There's more than one, which means that Ephesus was an elder-led church. Uh, they weren't senior pastor-led and they weren't congregation-led. They are elder-led. So you know about us at Sharon, we are an elder-led church. There is a group of men um, that have been prayed over, fasted over, and ha- are, are assuming leadership of our church Godly men, men who seek the Lord, who love their families well, who love the word of God and teach it. Those are our elders and they oversee the church. That's how we function here, here at um, at Sharon. It's the same thing for this church there. Here at Sharon, um, we, we we believe that Jesus is our senior pastor. We don't think that God's looking for any more kings. He's the king and then we just serve underneath him. So our elders, our elder board, serve underneath the rulership of Jesus as master and Lord and king and senior pastor and chief shepherd than to shepherd the flock of of our local church here. So let me just walk through a few things about elders. Um, Sometimes we misinterpret the role of an elder, and even elders from time to time, we misinterpret our role also. And maybe you've done it before in your family. Maybe as a father, you've forgot kind of what your role is or as a husband or a son or a daughter, and you try to play other roles. A few weeks ago, we were... We were out as a family and um, Landry, our four-year-old, was in the back seat and she had unbuckled herself as we were driving and was just walking around the car because she's tiny and could just walk. And so she's walking around the car, having a great time. And I see in the mirror that she's out of her car seat. And I said, Landry, get back in your car seat. She said, I unbuckled myself. I understand. I think that's how you got to where you are. Would you please get back in your seat? So I pull over and she won't get in her seat because she's four. And uh, so we have to have the conversation with her. And, And at that point, I think I've, I'd neglected some of my role as a father. And she says, well, why do I have to be buckled? And listen, I like, I, I want our kids to ask why. I want them to be inquisitive. I get tired of it, but I still want them to do it. And so she asked why. And in that moment, I said, because if you don't, daddy's gonna get arrested. I'm gonna go to jail for a long time. You know what happens in jail? I don't wanna tell you. I don't, I don't wanna go to jail. We're, I'm not going to jail because you're not in your seat. And then sweet Meredith, my wife, turns around and says, and because we love you and want you to be safe which is probably a better, probably the better answer. I'm like, the fear of God. And Meredith's like, we love you. And she's like, oh, okay, mama, thank you. <laughs> Lesson learned. But we forget our roles sometimes. And so uh, just quickly, especially for us in America, we kind of have a weird, I don't know if it's our like 
fame culture or what it is, but it's like pastors have become something that they're not supposed to be. And so I wanna walk through some of that. Here's our misconceptions of pastors and elders. We often call them leaders. And while I agree they are leaders, I think it's heavier than just being a leader. Um, Pastors are not organizational leaders. They are not CEOs or COOs. That's not what a pastor is. Is there part of pastoring and being an elder where you have to lead people? Absolutely. But a pastor as an organizational leader, I don't think is biblical. Uh, A pastor or an elder, we call them communicators, which I think is great. And there is an element in which elders have to be able to teach. They're apt to teach, it says in in 1st, 2nd Timothy and in Titus. That's, That's part of the role of an elder. Uh, But that's, to be a communicator is different from being a pastor. I think we've also called them vision casters. If you've heard that, it's kind of a buzz buzz phrase in the past few years. They cast vision well, which is fine. I I still don't know that's biblical when it comes to being a pastor. Is there an element of that? Absolutely. But to cast vision for the church, absolutely. But biblically, there's a heavier understanding of what an elder is. And I want to say this for your benefit and for ours for you to know that um, you are able to hold us to a standard as elders, as leaders of a church. There's a standard biblically by which we must live by. And a lot of it's not even as much behaviorally as it is when it comes to actually pastoring. So we're gonna see how Paul speaks to the elders and then we're gonna see why elders have to be biblical elders. What's at stake if an elder is just a leader or if an elder is just a communicator or an elder is just a vision caster? What's actually at stake for the church that they lead? So let's go down to verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul is speaking now to the Ephesian elders. And he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So notice what he says, pay careful attention, pay intimate attention, be intimately aware of or acquainted with. And then the first thing he says is yourselves. It can feel selfish. Uh, why, why look to yourself first? But he's speaking to leaders and what he's letting them know is you aren't any different from the people that you are pastoring. You too are prone to wander. You too are a sinner saved by grace. You too have lingering selfishness within your soul. And as elders, as pastors, it's our role. We, we have got to be examining our hearts and our souls first, which is the beauty of an elder-led church that one person is not responsible to hold himself accountable, but there's a group of men holding that person, those people accountable. So the first thing is that they gotta pay attention to yourselves. Elders must be aware of our own hearts and our own souls. Where are we wandering? Where are we fading? And again, it goes back to last week then, and then having the ability to confess that without without fear of being ostracized, being able to confess, hey, I think I'm wandering here. So we gotta pay attention to ourselves and to all the flock. Now, uh, leaders don't have flocks. Organizational leaders, they don't, they don't have flocks. Communicators don't have flocks. Vision casters don't have flocks. Who has flocks? Shepherds. Shepherds have flocks. So Paul is reminding the elders of the church of Ephesus, the bishops, uh, the overseers, you have a flock, which makes you something different than just a leader, different than just a communicator and different than just a vision caster. And he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word overseers is the word elder or bishop in Greek. And notice, they didn't make themselves that. They didn't earn that. They didn't work themselves up to it. Uh, They didn't start from the bottom and now they're here. That's not how it works for them. The Holy Spirit made them overseers. And then this next phrase in verse 28, he made them overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So if you're taking notes, that word care actually means shepherd. You've been overseers over the church of God to shepherd the church of God. Again, he called them a flock, and now he's saying you have to shepherd the flock. So here's what we're learning then about um, about elders biblically. They are called to care for the flock. To shepherd is to nourish them, to protect them, to feed, and to govern. Notice, we read Psalm 23 this morning and how the Lord is our good shepherd. Notice what he does. He nourishes us. He leads us beside still waters. He takes us to pasture. He, he nourishes us and feeds us. He protects us. He put a table for us in the presence of our enemies. 
And also then he governs us with the rod and the staff. They, they govern us, they comfort us. That's the role of an elder. And here's the problem. You can lead, uh, you can organizationally lead, you can communicate and you can vision cast and never once care for the flock. Does that make sense? As men, as women, you can lead something and never once care for the people that you're leading. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's you, maybe it's a coach. They, they led well, they communicated well, they casted vision well, but you never once felt cared for. That's not pastoring, that's not eldering. It's not what it is. You can do all of that and never once care for people. So my role, the role of the elders, um, the role of, of our pastors is that we would care for the flock that God has entrusted to us. It's not that we are not called to care for another flock in our community. We are called to care for this flock, these people in this church at this time. This is our role that we would elder them. So then you think, well, I don't, I don't wanna be eldered. I don't wanna be under someone's authority. Well, the problem is you're already being shepherded by something or by someone. Someone has already gotten governance of your soul. It might be a politician. It might be a famous athlete or a musician. It might be an influencer. It might be a parent. It might be a spouse or your kids. It might be quote unquote experts. Somebody is shepherding your soul this morning. So the question isn't, do I want to be shepherded? The question is, by whom do you want to be shepherded? Or what authority do you wanna place yourself under? Who's shepherding your soul this morning? which is why it's so crucial and pastors, elders in particular, have to understand their role. So Paul's gonna tell us why they're shepherds and why they're not just leaders and communicators and vision casters. Here's why, in verse 29. Because I know, Paul says, that when after my departure, fierce wolves and wolves attack sheep, you've read the fairy tales, I know after my departure, fierce wolves dress up like grandmas, I know that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Why? Why does an elder need to elder and not just lead and communicate and vision cast? Because there's an enemy. And leaders don't defend enemies. Communicators don't fight enemies. Vision casters don't fight enemies. Who fights enemies? Shepherds fight enemies. Someone who's just watching over a flock is called a hired hand. And Jesus has strong words about hired hands. Elders are called to pastor, to shepherd, to care for. Why? Because there's an enemy seeking your souls. I mean, this morning, 200 something of us in the room this morning, there is an enemy waiting to devour your soul. And here's the high calling of an elder or a pastor is to fight the enemies on your behalf. How do you do that if you're not paying attention? How can an elder do that if they aren't intimately aware? But he continues in verse 30, not only fierce wolves from the outside, but from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In context, who is he speaking to? It's the elders of the church at Ephesus. So when Paul says from among yourselves, please pay attention to who he's talking to. From the elder board, people are gonna rise up and twist the teachings of God. Like, that's frightening. It's not some antichrist and false prophet. From within the church will rise up men speaking twisted things. Why? Because they want people to follow after them. So I think there are fierce wolves in our society. There are fierce wolves. There are are wolves that just don't care to be caught. They're gonna come in with all they have to try to draw away the sheep, the children of God. They will do that. And many of us are aware of them because we've heard their music. We've seen their movies. We've read their books. Like those are the obvious ones. Those are the ones that you're making sure your kids are not following. You, you, as parents, you understand that. As grandparents, you understand that. As kids, maybe students, you might even understand there are some people in my school I just can't hang out with. That's great. There are fierce wolves. And honestly, right now, where we sit today, I am not as concerned about fierce wolves as I am about the twisted teaching from within the church. And I don't know that I necessarily mean within our teaching, although I am prone to wander too. Our teachers are prone to wander. But within the church as a whole, I think the greatest danger for us 
is the twisted teaching from within. And here's why. Because ever since Genesis chapter three, the enemy is an expert in twisting the words of God. Like there's an MO for the enemy. And he loves to twist the words of God. And he does not like the movement of God. The enemy hates forward progress of the movement of God. So he will do anything he can to stop it. He might even send someone named Saul to kill Christians. But what the enemy meant for evil, God turned for good. There's twisted teaching coming in because the enemy has learned we're pretty quick to discount the wolves. We're not as quick to discount the twisted teaching because when he first tried it in Genesis chapter three, the entire world fell into sin. When God gave a command, all the enemy had to say was, is that really what God said? Are you sure? That was it. That was it. So when we sing this morning that God is good, here's what the enemy does to you in your mind. Yeah, but is he? You sure? So the problem for us that I wanna deal with this morning that I feel called to deal with this morning is twisted teaching, okay? So maybe leave your spot there in Acts 20. We'll come back to it at the end. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter four. Again, there's a lot of of literature and scripture for us about this church at Ephesus. Paul writes this to, the, to a man named Timothy who's leading the church at Ephesus. Paul is on his way to heaven. He's, it's, the end is drawing near for him. But here's what he tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter four, verse two. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, Paul is speaking more imminently of what's coming, but I think these words still ring true for us today. Would you agree with me? There's coming a time when people will not endure. They won't put up with sound teaching. Now, it could be because they're bored. It could be because they feel guilty. It could be because of the way that our society is and attention spans are less than that of a goldfish right now. But that, this is what the enemy is doing to move us away from sound teaching because you will not get sound teaching in a 140-character tweet from someone. You won't get sound teaching through an Instagram post or a TikTok video. Sound teaching takes time to develop and you won't endure. When the time comes, people will no longer endure sound teaching. So instead, because they have itching ears, they, they have something they want to hear, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will build a library of teachers to suit their own passions. Now, 20, 25, 30 years ago, this was way more difficult to do. For you to hear a sermon from someone else, you would have to go to their literal physical building to hear it. And you would have to hear them sometimes with a microphone and sometimes with not, and you would hear another teaching. Or you could send in a check and they would mail you a CD with a sermon on it. And then you could listen to it if you were lucky enough to have a CD player in your car. Or you had that thing that you could hook up your disc man to your tape deck and then you could listen to that CD in the car. And before that, it was cassette tapes. But today, you know what you have to do today to hear other teaching? You just have to take the phone out of your pocket. Like literally right now, you could have earbuds in while I'm teaching and you could be listening to someone else, which might be better. I mean, I don't know. Like it's that easy. So the issue for us is how do I find teaching? The question is how do I know if it's quality? But I think just quickly what we have to do is evaluate this for ourselves. And your list of podcasts on your Spotify app or on your internet searches and your YouTube feeds, the people that you are listening to, why are you listening to them? Is it because they're teaching truth or is it because you have itching ears and you want to accumulate for yourself teachers to suit your own passions? Do you like what that famous pastor says because it makes you feel good about your pursuit of a job promotion and more money in a bigger house? Do you like that? Does that make you feel better? Because he's using the Bible to tell you it's okay. God wants you to be wealthy. Or is it because you're hearing truth and you just can't get enough of Jesus? There's coming a day, and it now is, where people will no longer endure sound teaching. But then verse four is the crux, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What seems innocent at the time will then lead us into turning away from the truth of God. 
That's what the enemy does, man, is what he does. He twists the words of God so subtly that we don't even know we're doing it. We don't even know we've fallen into false doctrine until it's five, 10, 15 years later. We don't know. And maybe by the grace of God today is a day of your awakening to realize, man, I started listening. I can't believe I'm here. They wander off into myths. So let me give us just one litmus test for us. The gospel that saves you is the same gospel that sustains you, okay? So the gospel that saves you is the same one that sustains you. So the question for you this morning, what gospel are you trusting in to sustain you today? Uh, What are you depending on to make you feel at peace and content and joy? What are you depending on? What are you depending on to rescue you from your own convictions? What are you depending on? Are you depending on the finished work of Jesus, the very thing that saved you, or are you depending upon your bank account and your job title or your wife or the fact that you're a mama? What is it today? If you are trusting something today to sustain you that isn't the gospel that saved you by the finished work of Jesus, you have wandered into myths. And I love you enough to say it this morning. So in the church at Ephesus, there were three primary false gospels, false doctrines being taught, okay? Uh, The first one was called um, Hellenism. Hellenism is the worship of of culture. So it's the Greek Hellenists. So they worshiped Greek culture. So it's uh, Greek gods and goddesses, but it's also Greek art, Greek music, Greek philosophy. Hellenism is the worship of culture. So back then, that's what they were worshiping. They were worshiping their culture. Secondly, it was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is when you begin to worship knowledge. So these are very simplified, dumbed down um, descriptions, but you worship knowledge. So the belief was uh, in true Gnosticism that the body is bad, but the soul and mind are good. And you just have to unlock the key of knowledge and then you realize how good you are. That's Gnosticism. It's a, uh, a bent on a way of life or a particular knowledge that saves you. That's salvation based on knowledge. And then finally, um, what's called syncretism. Syncretism is when you assemble a bunch of different things together. You pick and choose what you like, and then you make that into one more um, kind of a teaching or a doctrine to make one that suits you. So the things you like about um, the God of the Muslims is this, and something that you like about the God of, of the Hindus and something you like about the God of the Protestants. And then we make that all together. Now we have a God that we like, a God of our own making, scripture would say. That's what syncretism is. So the church at Ephesus is struggling with these three things. It's worship of culture, worship of knowledge, and the worship of a self-made God. So what I want to do is, the problem with scripture is that we read it like, oh, that was too bad for them. But we forget the angel to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 said, those of you who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're churches. We're going to hear it. So here's the problem for us. We have a new Hellenism, and it's the gospel of politics. In the church in America... We bow at the altar of our party. We bow at the altar of politicians. What has been creeping in, the twisted teaching for us, because you can go to Romans 13, and well, Romans 13 says you need to respect those in authority. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So we twist teaching then to say, well, no, 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 listen, I love Jesus, but I don't want him to take me out of America. Hellenism has has made its way into our own cultures and we worship at the altar of politics. We have a gospel of politics. And here's a litmus test for you. Are you waiting until November to then have peace and hope everything's okay in November? Can we all just be honest enough to say that's not going to happen? I don't care who wins and who loses. No man can give you the peace in your heart that you need. It's never gonna happen but we worship at the altar of politics. And particularly in the South, we have become a people who have worshiped politics. This is a new Hellenism for us that we have to be aware of. And where patriotism overrides kingdom, then we've lost the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the banner and the flag that you live under primarily is the gospel of Jesus, not the stars and the stripes. And I love America. I'm thankful that I'm American. I don't want to live anywhere else. We've been other places. I love the freedoms that we have here. But when I begin to worship a president and hope a president sustains me, when I have the gospel of the good news of the creator of the universe that can sustain me, I have wandered into a myth. And those of us who have tried that myth know how mythy it is. The new Gnosticism for us is the gospel of religion, where if you just have the right knowledge, you'll find salvation. If you just know the right verses and know the right things, then you will have salvation. And for those of you like me who grew up in churches memorizing things in Awana, you have a lot of that in your mind. We've got a lot of Bible in our mind. And it often comes out in Facebook posts to make everyone else know, hey, if you just knew this, it would be fine. If you just knew this, it would fix all of your problems. It's just knowledge for us. It's a gospel of religion. Do this, don't do that. Legalism. But the biggest one for us, I think it's the new syncretism, which is the gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism, which I think is a phrase we all use normally. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. I, I say that all the time. Hey, what are you doing today? Oh, just some moralistic therapeutic deism. So I want to unpack what this is, but this is syncretism. Again, syncretism is when you take things that you like and then you put it all together into one new kind of recipe. So this, this phrase, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, was coined back in 2005, which was 15 years ago, by the way. In 2005, a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, written by Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Duncan. They were researchers at UNC Chapel Hill, and they spent uh, seven to 10 years researching American Christian teenagers. Christian teenagers. So in churches, kids that went to youth group, um, that sang songs, that loved DC Talk, like those, 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 those students for us. How many of you this morning um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you were in high, middle school, high school, or college? Any of you this morning? Raise them, raise them high. Proud millennials, proud. Yeah, um, I'm like, I'm late Gen, Gen X. And so I was in, in high school then. If someone were to ask you what you remember about youth group, could you name a message you remember? Could you name a sermon? Some of us could, right? There are some sermons we remember, some messages. Uh, for many of us, we remember lock-ins. We remember dodgeball. We remember, um, we rem I don't know, what else do you remember? Other things, go-karts. You remember um, doing things you shouldn't be doing that today you would literally go to jail for. But it was fine if you were a youth pastor back then, you could do it. Right, Greg? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, so back then, but the problem was um, we, we were all being taught something. Most of us, if, unless you were blessed enough to be in a, a Bible-based student ministry, it was all about how do we attract students to come here, right? Which I think, again, is a great thing. How do we get more people to hear the gospel? But it started to move from, hey, let's do a fifth quarter. Let's do a lock-in to, hey, let's, let's throw a keg party and just serve root beer instead, so what happened then is we begin to shift culture, our theology, to make sure that kids and students like it. So again, like me, many of us now who were raised in that environment, now we're leading things. And the world is evidence of how well we've done leading things. But we lead things now, right? People in their late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, they are pastors now. They are elders. They're writing books. They have podcasts. They have YouTube channels. And so what was once felt like an innocent doctrine for teenagers has now become a doctrine for those leading the church and we are in trouble. So here's what moralistic therapeutic deism is. I'm just gonna take these three words apart. Moralistic is the emphasis on morality. It's the idea that the Bible is used to teach morality and good behavior. It's, it's, um, it's very subjective because what was moral 30 years ago is not moral anymore today or vice versa. So morality is subjective, but the whole point of those teaching, the whole point of this brand of theology is that we teach morality. It's just what it comes down to, be kind and be nice. That's, that's morality. That's the moralistic part of it. So case in point, I want you to think through how you've been taught about the fruit of the Spirit. Have you been taught that you have to have, you must be loving, joyful, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and have self-control? Have you been, is that what you were taught when it came to the fruit of the Spirit? Well, here's the problem. 
you don't just manufacture fruit, you have to grow it out of something. The truth of scripture is not that you try to be more fruit of the spirit people, but it's that you plant your roots in the good gospel of Jesus Christ. And from there grows this fruit. But if you're like me, that's not what we were taught. And as a parent now, I want my kid to have the fruit of the spirit. Even if I have to beat it into him, he will have the fruit of the spirit today. This is, this is what's happened. More of the therapeutic deism is the fruit has become the emphasis rather than the roots. That's moralistic. Second is therapeutic. It's an emphasis on just feeling good. Um, Theology has become self-helpy. Go to any Barnes and Noble, uh, go online to Barnes and Noble, look at your Amazon book list and look under Christian living and tell me how many of those books have to do with your own feelings. It's therapy that the Bible has become therapeutic for us. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It's all about self-help. So the Bible is twisted and we only teach the things that give us good feelings and then we don't teach the things that convict us. So it's moralistic. It's about your behavior. It's about being kind and being good, which then comes in line with, and if you are those things, you'll be happy. Then you'll be happy. If you fight the right fights, you'll be happy. If you care for the right people, you'll be happy. And then deism. So I'm just going to read a quote from the book. Deism, they say, when God is something like a combination of a divine butler and cosmic therapist, he's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps people feel good about themselves, but he does not become too personally involved in the process. It's a view of God in which he gives me what I want, and then he's not involved after that. He just drops in from time to time to fix my problems and give me what I want. But he's trained himself to not be too emotionally invested in my life. This is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I think it's ravaging our churches because 15 to 20 years ago, it was taught as an innocent substitute to students because they couldn't handle the heavier things of the Bible. Praise the Lord that our student ministries led by Cody and Greg are not those types of ministries. If your child is in middle school or high school, they are being taught the Bible. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for men who will teach our kids about Jesus and for Allison who's teaching our kids and Natalie who's praying over and teaching our preschoolers the Bible. Because if if middle schoolers can handle algebra, or pretend to, they can handle the Bible. I go off on that one, I need to not. Twisted teaching, the problem with this this is that false doctrine is created when we view God through our lenses of religion, culture, and our wants, rather than viewing those things through the lens of God. We've made God fit the culture instead of sifting culture to find God. And twisted teaching is difficult because it sounds and looks just like the real thing, doesn't it? Like when I talk to, hey, we want our kids to be full of the fruit of the Spirit. Yes. How do we do that? Well, then you have to teach them love. Great. It sounds so close. Okay, so if it's hard to discern twisted teaching, can we discern what a twisted teacher is? I think we can. I think we can. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter six, and we're gonna begin to wrap up here. 1 Timothy chapter six, Paul is telling Timothy again, he tells him over and over again, false teachers are coming, false teachers are coming, the wolves are coming, be aware, fight for your flock, defend them. And in 1 Timothy uh, chapter six, just verses three through five, it says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, in other words, if, if there's a false teacher, if there's someone who's teaching a false doctrine, here's how you'll know. Verse four, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. How do you know a false teacher? A false teacher is proud and arrogant. Arrogant. I wanna stand before you as someone who has humbly tried to understand scripture in a way to communicate to you that we might fight the wolves in our culture. Should I ever become proud and arrogant, please confront me. Should I wander into arrogance and conceit? It's the blessing of an elder-led church. There are men who will confront me. But a false teacher is proud. He's arrogant. 
It's all about them. It's their self-display. So teaching the word turns into about them. They're the heroes of the story. They are David. They are Moses. It's self-display. But for the really good ones, what the really good ones have learned to do is to be humble in a way that creates a pride in them. Right? So, okay, false teachers are arrogant. They are proud. Secondly, they share facts, but they don't share wisdom. They understand nothing. The word for understand means that you put two things together. It's not just that you can regurgitate information, but that you can put those things together. A false teacher doesn't know how to put together those things. He can't put together wisdom. So they influence through manipulation and control, not love and shepherding. They will overpower you. They will feign an intellectual superiority over you so that you fall into line. Okay, false teachers are proud. They share facts, but not wisdom. Continues in verse four. This false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. False teachers pick fights. False teachers pick fights. They're going to teach things in a way um, that forces you to pick a side, not to pick Jesus. They like to stir up dissension. They like to cause tension, but never resolve it with the good news of Jesus. They just wanna get things stirred up. And we've seen it in the world, haven't we? We've seen it. We've seen it in media. We've seen it with politicians. And how sad that we would see it in the church. Church is a place for hope, for unity, not dissension. And finally, in verse five, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, uh, false teachers use their platform for their own pursuits. A false teacher who is not content to shepherd the flock that the Holy Spirit gave him is not a teacher at all. He's leveraging the platform. He's leveraging his godliness for his own selfish gain. Now, please don't hear me say that pastors who write books are false teachers. Some are. And some are just following the giftedness God gave them and they're loving the church well. But for a pastor who's gonna leverage this for his own pursuits, that's, that's false teaching. So then what do we do with all this? Because it sounds overwhelming. There's a lot that has to happen. Well, back in Acts chapter 20, Paul's gonna finish up verse 31. He says, therefore, be alert, elders, be alert. Leaders in our church, elders in our church, be alert. Remembering that for three years, I did not cease day or night to admonish every one of you with tears. What he's saying is, I'm not one of them. I'm not a hired hand. In fact, I've cried over you. I've wept over your souls. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. You wanna know how you know a good teacher and not a false teacher? Because they get out of the way and point you to Jesus. A false teacher makes every story about him, makes every teaching about him. And he is the go-between. No, no, no. He is the conduit by which you get to Jesus. Paul steps out of the way and says, hey, I've been here, but now I'm gonna give you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What Paul is saying is that it's the gospel, the gospel that saves you is the same gospel that sustains you. Listen, you can trust what I'm saying, he says. It's able to build you up and give you an inheritance. You can trust this. This is true. It's not me. When I'm gone, this is still here. So for us, the issue though is like, man, so then I have to know every false teaching. I have to know every false doctrine. I have to identify every false teacher. I would say no. You just have to know the real thing. You just have to know the real thing. If somebody hands you a counterfeit $100 bill and you've been studying, you've been studying counterfeit $20 bills, you'll never know. But if you've been studying the real $100 bill and someone hands it to you, you know that's fake. Because you can, you can identify, you can know a counterfeit by studying that counterfeit, but you can identify all counterfeits by studying the real thing. In 1 Peter, Peter says um, to be sober-minded and be watchful because your adversary, the enemy, is, is wandering around. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what do we do? Well, he says in verse nine, resist him by standing firm in your faith. This morning, do you know what you believe? 
And then secondly, do you know why you believe that? And if you don't, you are fresh meat for the wolves and the twisted teachers. Your job, my job, is to know Jesus. And when anything else tries to creep in, pretending to be doctrine, pretending to be gospel, we smell it a mile away. And we say, get behind me, Satan. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we wrap up this morning? I don't know how you've come in this morning and what you were expecting and what your life has been like this week, but I think it would be unloving of me to not give us a chance in the final few minutes to just think through what we believe. Here's the gospel. The true gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his son for us. That we were far from him because of our sin, both in our hearts and in our hands, and we were far from him. And the only way to find peace was to be with him. And the only way to get to him was through the blood of a sacrifice. But it couldn't be any sacrifice. It had to be pure and perfect. So John 3 tells us that God sent his pure and perfect son, God in flesh, to be the final sacrifice for our sins. The gospel is not that you have to earn your way to God's presence or earn your way to God's love. The gospel is that God has done the work for you. You just have to trust that that was enough. So we have to first confess that we are far from him and we need him. And then secondly, oh, we say that we, we believe he is enough, that the finished work of Jesus is enough. We believe it happened. We believe it's enough. And then we walk in that truth. We, we are sustained by that same truth. Maybe someone this morning, maybe you've been living under the guise of the gospel, but what you've learned this morning is you've actually been following a false gospel. You don't know Jesus. You know Hellenism. You know Gnosticism. You know syncretism. Is anyone this morning who would say, I thought I was following Jesus, but I'm learning, I don't think I'm following Jesus. I, I want to follow Jesus. Anyone this morning who would raise their hand and say, I, I, yeah, I, I wanna surrender my life to the true gospel this morning. Maybe for some of us this morning, maybe we haven't wandered that far into myth, but we feel the rumblings of it. Because what's sustaining you today isn't the gospel. It's the hope of a politician. It is a bank account or a spouse or kids or a career. Maybe we have to repent this morning from chasing after false gods. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you are the good shepherd who cares for his flock. Thank you that you don't leave us vulnerable to wolves, but that you seek the one. And so for those of us this morning who have wandered off, would you remind us that your, your, your goodness is coming after us to bring us back into the fold? Give us spiritual eyes to see, discerning hearts to know what is true and what is not. Help us to follow you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.